You're listening to Trek FM. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. Welcome everyone to Trek FM's local watering hole where friends from the network and people just drop by. We talk all things geeky and I am I am beyond excited this week because we are going to talk about something that I have loved since I was probably like six years old um, and it's it's so much fun to be able to to do this kind of thing on the show and we are going to talk about The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, the movie that came out in 2006. But this is a story that I think we all kind of have a really long history with. And before we kind of get into everything, I want to introduce who's going to be talking about this with me tonight. And first and foremost, I'm really excited to have Maureen Moser with us, who is, as everybody knows, if you don't know on the network, Darren does our show, Earl Grey. And his wife is with us tonight to talk about The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. How are you doing tonight, Maureen? I'm doing wonderful. Really excited. Awesome. Well, I'm so glad you could be here. I know that you are a big fan of C.S. Lewis, so I'm excited Yeah, to have another Lewis fan here. And back with us, so excited when she's here. Andy, how's it going? It's good. Awesome. Well, for you guys... Um, I wanted, or excuse me, you ladies, because there's only one guy on this show, and it's me. So, for you <laughs> ladies, um, what is your history with um, Narnia as a series? Is it something that you grew up with, that you liked as a kid? Um, Andy, uh, what was kind of your first experience with Narnia, and has it been something that um, you've read for a long time, or did you just get into it? I honestly don't remember a time when I hadn't read the Chronicles of Narnia. I feel like I must have like read it at age three or something. I'm pretty sure it was one of the first books I ever read um, because trying to think back on the first time I read it, I can't. Um, It's just that ingrained with my childhood, to be honest. Um, And I've reread it probably at least 20 to 30 times um, the whole series. So it's just one of those that I I go back to all the time and uh, have a really fond uh, spot in my heart for. And one of the, one of the books that was kind of my gateway into epic fantasy Mm -hmm. nerddom. um, It started with Chronicles of Narnia and Lord of the Rings and all these kinds of like epic fantasy and I think it's one reason why I still am such a sucker for a big doorstopper book about magical places that are far away so I owe a lot of my love of all things fantasy to Chronicles of Narnia. Mm. What about you Maureen? Well um, when I was a little girl I and had first learned how to read by myself I didn't like to read Um, And so among the efforts my parents went to to help me to like reading, my dad bought the Chronicles of Narnia when I was in the second grade and read them to me at night. And um, that sold me on books and on reading. Uh, I didn't know that stories get, you know, because all the little stories you'd read in those boring literature books they'd have at school were just, they were boring. 
Um, but Narnia wasn't boring and, um, it just kind of swept me up and I, I fell in love with Aslan and, um, I've reread them multiple times since then. And, uh, yeah, they just, I think my favorite out of the seven was the horse and his boy, uh, just for the sheer adventure of it. But I've, uh, loved each of them in their turn, some more than others. And, um, it, it was sweet because I love Narnia so much. Um, my husband, Darren actually proposed to me using, the um dvd box set of this movie that we're going to be talking about they had nice yeah they had the bookends in there with tumnus and lucy yes i have those yeah well that little mr tumnus lamppost um he had unwrapped the whole box put the ring on the lamppost rewrapped it i couldn't even tell that the shrink wrap had been tampered with so i don't know if that's a good or bad thing um (laughs) but it was his christmas present to me and so by my um parents Christmas tree yeah he had me open it up and he had to goad me into opening because I'm like well, we're not gonna watch it right now and he's like just open the box and um and there was the ring inside there with uh the lamppost so uh so both childhood and adult memories associated with Narnia that is awesome that's a great story um yeah, yeah I rem- I have that same box set too because it came with the bookends and they're very much pro uh, promote in my living room because um, it's they're such beautiful works um, and uh, I really you know for me I'm a little bit like you I grew up and I didn't really like to read fiction as a kid um, I I liked reading nonfiction and my friends had read this and they were like you should read this this is really good and I was like oh, okay and. A whole new world was opened up, (laughs) just as Narnia is to the kids uh, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And, um, you know, back then, uh, we didn't go in chronological order. The books were um, numbered in the the rankings as Lewis had written them. So my first book to read was The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And I completely was head over heels with it. And like you, Andy, this was really, I think, the thing that kind of from that moment on like I was I was a geek you know um and you've got you know this and and then the um Lord of the Rings and then of course you know that led to you know me being ready to to love Star Wars and then finding Star Trek and of course um getting into uh, Harry Potter once that finally came out and like it just led to so many different things um, but this was the first first love. Like Star Wars is my first like geek love um, in that sense. But this is the thing that made all of those other loves possible. Um, and so for me, bringing this classic to life was a big deal. And um, I don't know about you guys, but have either of you seen the animated version that they did like way, way back in the day? Um have any of y'all seen that? No, I haven't seen the animated version. I was we owned the um the BBC version though. All of the BBCs that they did for Narnia. What about you, Andy? Did you ever see that at all? Uh no, I haven't actually seen okay. either of those. Although I think the Voyage of the Dawn Treader BBC version was on PBS once and I was like, "Oh, I know that movie." what that movie is about but that's (laughs) about it because I I don't have any memory of either of those I'm with you Maureen in that I grew up with 
the animated version and the BBC version. And so I completely remember um, the bad rubber costumes <laughs> and the stilted ch- children acting and just the bad production value, but that's all I had really. So yeah, I watched those over and over and over again. And um, my wife and I were actually making fun of the the kind of the way the beavers walk the other day as yeah. we were watching this movie. We were talking about the BBC versions because that's what she grew up with as well. And so, you know, in light of Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter being massive hits, you know, by 2006, it was pretty inevitable that somebody was going to bring Narnia to life. And mm-hmm. those somebodies were Walden Media and Disney. Um, with a little bit of help from Weta Workshop um, with some of the production props. And so I wanted to talk about um, a little bit for you guys, the look and the feel just of Narnia itself kind of coming to life on screen. And what did you guys think as you watched the film, you know, and we've all seen it multiple times now, but what were some of your thoughts about the things that you just like love about the film and what they get right about that look? of what you think Narnia is going to look like and what were maybe some of the things you thought, eh, I don't know, I saw it differently. What about you, Maureen? Well, I loved um, maybe the first half of the movie more than the second half um, in terms of looks. Um, I have to admit, it has been a little while since I've watched it because I had I had really mixed feelings about it. Um, but I loved the scene with... Um, Lucy and Tumnus when they first meet because mm-hmm. that's a very yeah. vivid description in the book um, and I felt like they, they really nailed that as, in terms of the way it looked and and the CGI was advanced enough so that um, James McAvoy really looked like he had fawn legs and I forget I it, I think he had to like walk a certain way or whatever to kind of help get that the gate down the goat gate. Yeah he gate. would walk on the balls of his feet so yeah. that like he would be kind of moving in a way. Yeah, they spent days and days trying to figure out just his walk. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah, in terms of like just how you picture that scene going, I think they nailed that scene in particular really, really well. What about you, Andy? If we're talking purely production value and the looks and the feel, I would say that they pretty much nailed it. Um, I remember seeing... The scene where Lucy first goes into Narnia and she sees the lamppost, I'm like, that's exactly how I always saw it in my mind. And the snow and the just the look of it, it, it looks like how I always pictured Narnia. Um, I think that uh, most of the, the flaws in the film come more from story and characterization rather than like... The production value, because I think the production value is rather rather stellar. Yeah, I I think that I would agree with that. That scene is, I think, probably perfect. Yeah. You know, she comes into Narnia, and and I think this is something that um, the the, the director um, really decided that he wanted in the film. Andrew Adamson, this was his first live action production he had directed Shrek mm-hmm. um, but this is his first live action movie and the way that he worked with these kids was I think really amazing watching behind the scenes um, he didn't let Georgie Henley see Narnia until they 
they they blindfolded her. They set her where her spot was going to be, where she needed to be. They took the blindfold off and they started rolling the cameras so that the moment that she's seeing Narnia for the first time, we're seeing that on screen. Mm-hmm. And I think it really works because the performance and the production and everything is perfect so that it feels like this kid has just stumbled into this brand new world. And I think that part is really, really, really cool. Um, and it shows that they put a lot of thought into how do we make this believable? We need children actors that can do this. And how do we make it work where we get the real emotion um, from them as much as possible? Because they did the same thing with her and Mr. Tumnus. She knew James and they had gotten to know each other, but she had never, ever seen him in costume. She'd never seen the makeup. She'd never seen anything like that. So when she sees him for the first time, her scream and her reaction is real. Like, <laughs> she was freaked out for a second, and it works perfectly. So those scenes, yeah, and and the look of Narnia itself to me um, is really spectacular. And strangely enough, I, I you know, they actually filmed in New Zealand, just yeah. like Lord of the Rings did. And yet they were able to find landscape that didn't just make you feel like I'm, I'm in Middle Earth again. Um, that's true I never I knew they filmed in New Zealand but I never really felt like we were in Middle Earth um, I think maybe partly because it was a lot more colorful than Lord mm-hmm. of the Rings yeah especially once the winter melted yeah um, they do a really good job with that and they they blend really well um, they went to Eastern Europe to get some of the scenes like um, the snow scenes with Mr. Tumnus's house and where that is so they're able to blend all of that together to make it feel organic. So, um, I yeah, I really like the way that they bring this movie to life. I think that when it came to kind of, you know, picturing Narnia as a kid, and, and this was kind of cool. Andrew Adamson said that when he was um, first thinking about, you know, how he wanted to direct the movie, his idea was, okay, I want to direct what I felt as a child like because we all read and we remember a book a certain way and that's how he wanted to direct the movie and I think that may be why we all watched the movie and felt like that part in Narnia itself and everything feels very real like it feels like what we thought it was going to be like Um, because it was somebody else actually just being like huh what did I remember from this story I want to put that on screen for you guys. You know, you you've read the book. Uh, we've all seen books that have been turned into movies. Um, you know, Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, and it's it it never seems to match up. You know, um, a lot of the times, and and most of the time, I feel like oh, the book is better. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, how did you guys think of, of bringing this to life? And what you've imagined in the book. Um, Can you guys ever divorce the two? Like you can say, okay, this is the movie and this is the book. How do you guys approach that? Because we get a lot of that these days with, obviously, like I said, Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, um, The Hunger Games, all of these books that have gotten turned into movies. How do you guys deal with that? I I 
always really like movie adaptations because, well, if they're done well, <laughs> let's make that clear. Yeah. Um, but if, if they're... A, yeah, City of Bones, not <laughs> yeah, so much. or I was actually thinking about the other uh, series that I loved at around this time was The Dark is Rising. And they turned The Dark is Rising into the most horrifying adaptation where, like, he goes to the mall. And I'm like, what is happening? Oh, this is supposed to be in, like, old England. But okay. Um, but I do like well-done movie adaptations because I think you can bring out new kind of, like, new ways of looking at things. And if you do it right, it can be, like, a nice companion to a book that you loved. Um, so if I'm trying to decide which I like better, I mean, I don't think you can really top the book. Um, but I don't. I think that this is a, a good adaptation of that book, and that there are a handful of scenes and lines and kind of characterization tweaks that they made that I actually really like. Um, one is Edmund, um, kind of fleshing out why he might be acting like such a brat. Um, you know what kind of problems he's ha- <laughs> he has going on, and why he might be resentful of Peter, and like you know what would drive him to to do such terrible things in the beginning of this book. And I think they do a really good job of that in the movie, whereas in the book, as much as I've always liked Edmund, and I think he's probably my favorite character just because I think he's very interesting in that he is one of the characters that really grows and, like, learns more about himself because the other three pretty much stay the same. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I just mean that Edmund had growing up to do that he needed to do, and we got to see him do that. So I've always found him to be really interesting. But in the book, it's kind of like, Edmund is a brat. And now he's doing bratty things. But why is never really fleshed out. It's kind of left underneath the surface, whereas in the movie, they kind of bring that to the fore. And I've always really liked that, that they made the choice to kind of subtly explain why he might be acting out and in this way um i think for me with book adaptations and movies in general um i think i guess it just kind of depends on how passionate i am about the book source um like i'm a huge jane austen fan and i've actually really enjoyed um several of the major film adaptations that have come out for her books um uh but i guess the the general wisdom holds though that the book is pretty much always better than the movie. Um, with Narnia, um, with Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe, I think I got myself so wound up in anticipation for the film that by the time I got to it, to be honest, um, I wasn't really overwowed by it. Looking back, though, as I was thinking about you know getting ready for this podcast and everything, I started to wonder, I think I may have been too hard on this one. Definitely not a fan of Caspian or the Dawn Treader adaptations but I think for Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe um in hindsight um I think I need to rewatch it and give it another shot um and uh as far as like divorcing the two I I guess I don't have a problem with that because I had already read the book so many times um that it was very easy to just be like okay here's the book universe this is the movie universe um whereas with Harry Potter I admit I saw the movies before I read the books and so when I read the books you know I'm picturing Daniel Radcliffe and Emma Watson and all those guys in my head um so yeah so that really shaped my view of those books whereas with Narnia I'd already had the image in my head and I will say like as we were talking about like the visuals of Narnia at the very least um that I think they really did nail that it really did look like it had stepped out of my imagination like 
especially Lucy and Edmund, the actors they got for those kids, I thought that looks and yeah, Skander Keynes really was like Edmund and Georgie Henley was perfect for Lucy. I think they nailed those casting choices really well. And I think Tilda Swinton, um, even though her looks wise, um, they did some different things with her than what's described in the book, um, which I'm, I'm not sure about. I think just she was really menacing and really scary and she was a, a very, very good white witch. And she doesn't seem human. And that's the most important part. No, no is she doesn't. They don't doesn't. even change no. her to look non-human. I mean, they make her a little paler yeah. and they give her some really rockin' dreads. But, like, other than that, like, they don't actually change her look very much. All of her inhuman quality com- is coming from her performance and kind of... Well, her yeah. face is, is very strange, which is one of her calling cards as an actress. Is she has this very androgynous, mm-hmm. very kind of otherworldly look which is perfect for this movie but she also has a great does a great job of just being so cold and you can really feel Mm -hmm. like this is (laughs) so cold well yeah but I mean that's (laughs) part of what she had to play right is there's a reason why um the witch is you know associated with ice castles in winter because she is Mm -hmm deep down all the way to her core a frozen cold person um yeah elsa eat your heart out <laughs> oh definitely definitely oh that <laughs> the original be, ice queen i would love to see the white witch go up against elsa i'm picturing that in my head right now oh that's a battle on, right Ed. there you know how they have i'm those, pretty like, sure the, the white, white witch, witch went down to edmund geek battles <laughs> yeah yeah well technically she went down to aslan yeah, but i guess yeah that's but he's true. still I don't know. Um, but either way, Tilda Swinton, awesome. Well, I think Elsa might be too nice. That's the thing. She might That's be too true. nice. And the White yeah. Witch just isn't going to care. <laughs> no, she's not. I loved her um, her crown, the icicles yeah. like growing out of her head. And then it starts to melt as the spring thaw comes. So like her power is visibly diminishing with the. I thought I really like really her cool dresses um, and kind of the very strangely yes. shaped. Um, and kind of just a little bit off dresses, but the, but then the final scene where she it she puts on her like battle uniform and she's got like that gold antler crown thing and the really wild makeup and then apparently I, I saw I, the when I rewatched it the other day I was like she, I think she's wearing Oslin's mane around her neck she, and I oh, never I know. noticed that I, know. I, was I don't like, know yes. how but that's amazing. Yeah, this, it's kind of like sadistic and yeah, she's twisted. like wearing yeah. the yeah. actual like trophy of her victim into battle. It's it's awesome. It really mm-hmm. really sells that character and makes us scared for the heroes because gosh, she just looks so scary. I love it. And one of the neat things about that character too is that even though she is the stereotypical bad guy in the movie, like she's the evil queen like there's something about the way that she's played here that it just feels like there's always a lot more going on than just her being the bad person you know and I think that's one of the things that Tilda was able to do is kind of give her that otherworldly quality as well as invibe her with something that you weren't just getting like the 
Oh, and she doesn't have a mustache, but you know, the idea of the mustache twirling villain, you know, like there's so much more there. And I think that's really um, nice when the evil queen doesn't just feel like she's just a bad person, that there's so much more going on here. Um, and part of that is, is we, you know, from reading the storyline, we know that she has a history here mm-hmm. in Narnia. She's been here since the beginning with uh, Aslan. And so they have this history as well. And yeah. I think that she's able to kind of bring that in, um, even without them mentioning it really um at all in the movie and uh well you can't get much higher of a quality actor than tilda swinton i mean she's world class so and it's important that they got got a really strong actress for that part because it could have gone really wrong and it could have been really really bland and one note but uh it was not and i mean that really that really anchors the whole movie yeah i think if i had to um point out like any weak links in terms of acting i have to admit william mosley and anna popplewell as peter and susan were not my favorites um i think the younger kids um skander and georgie were uh, much stronger uh in their acting than the older two um maybe that's just me but i had more of a problem with susan's writing than um the acting i i just i didn't like the way they kind of made her I don't know, almost naggy. Um, I, I didn't like that mm. she was constantly undermining Peter. And I, I do understand why they did that, kind of. Like, they were trying to give Peter is is deciding to be a hero kind of arc. and But it just it was very unlikable, and I didn't like to see that aspect of her character. Um, but, yeah, I, I did notice when I was rewatching it, I did notice a handful of times where I kind of winced at some of her lines, and I was like, but why? Why would you say that to your brother as he's trying to protect you? Like, why? Why? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know if they're trying to set up anything, because, well, I don't know if this is going to be a spoiler if you haven't read If you haven't read the Chronicles of Narnia, of Narnia um, it's, <laughs> I think... Yeah. Has, that, has that expired? It's like years ago. years ago. Yeah, we can... Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. 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 Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, well, okay. So she's going to be the backslider eventually for the last battle. And I don't know if maybe they were thinking if we make all seven of these movies or all seven books, we better kind of start setting her up for that. Um, and I don't know if C.S. Lewis had that in his head when he was writing the books um, or if he just wrote them as they came. There's some subtle things, I think, when you look at... Um, Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, and some of the other books where Susan appears that maybe are indicators, perhaps, that she's going to backslide in the last book. Um, But I don't know if maybe for the movie, maybe maybe that's why they had her be a bit more of a nag, because they know, in anticipation possibly, of her doing that in a later movie, if they ever actually make that movie. I don't know. I think part of the thing with her, too, is that, you know, and it's the this is why I think both the older children are, are a little bit off is because they're also surrogate parents in there. And those people always come off as annoying to those of us who, you know, are maybe the younger. Um, like it, they're supposed to be kind of annoying. Peter is, is being the, the, the father figure to his brothers and sisters because he's been kind of thrust into that role. And, and Susan is 
picking up the slack for there being no mother. Um, and um, she's not doing it well. You know, she's she's um, she's not practiced at it. She's she's not old enough to really be in that role. And I think that for me, I, I never really judge them too badly, especially Susan, um, because of the fact that she's in a role that she doesn't fit in. And so if it comes off kind of like, Ugh, I kind of cringe at it. I think that might be kind of the point um, because I always got that in the book too. Uh, you know, the especially the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, not, not any of the others um, with Susan, is that this first book that she is trying to be the adult. Yeah. Even more so than Peter. Um, and she's not doing it all that well. Yeah, um, I think she's always trying to be the adult. I know in mm-hmm. Prince Caspian, they kind of, some of the younger ones snap at her for trying to be the grown-up. Right. Yeah. So I think that they're even playing with that here. And that's probably the reason that they kind of come off like that. Um, For me, the story has always been about Lucy. Mm -hmm. And she is my favorite literary character. And this is my favorite book of all time. And she, for me, had to be she has to sell it like the other kids revolve around her um and georgie henley is everything i ever thought lucy was yeah she was Um, and she just nails it like she she has this effervescence and this beauty and quality in her that is so pure and innocent and that's exactly who lucy is and that's what i love about her is that you know she doesn't have to change her character is virtuous all in of itself from the moment she goes into Narnia to the moment she leaves Narnia and um you know she has some moments throughout the series where she'll need some growth like um the voyage of the dawn treader but on a whole Lucy is the one who always believes and always believes that what is good is going to win and for me I love that about her and that purity um it usually doesn't come off well in stories. No, but that's Lewis's strength, I think, is that it's so hard to write good characters who are um, to their core good. That's actually why I love Aslan so much, because when you have, you know, bad guys versus good guys, frequently the bad guys are very attractive, if not physically. They're just um, charismatic and... It just, you know, people, you know, get all excited about these bad guy characters, which is fun, but it's hard to do the same with good characters. And that's what I love about Aslan is uh, I felt to me as, as a child and even as an adult, I felt like Lewis had really done something unusual and beautiful with Aslan in making him a good character whose team you really wanted to be on just because he was so good. Um... You know, and I think because they had the whole, you know, he's not a tame lion thing. He is dangerous um, and big. And I guess, you know, the whole talking animal thing was just cool, too. You know, who wouldn't want to be friends with a talking (laughs) lion? Um, You know, and uh, yeah, but I think it's the same with Lucy. Just her. It is hard to do that with a character to make them good and make them likable. And interesting. Yeah. 
Yes, and interesting. And mm-hmm. Lucy is definitely that. Yeah, for me, Lucy, her strength is her curiosity and her sense of wonder, which she never loses. And uh, she's just, yeah. she does exactly what you should do when you go into a fantastical place, which is she's like, wow, awesome. I'm going to go make some friends. <laughs> I just, I love that about her, <laughs> that she meets this fawn in the woods and it, and it doesn't even occur to her to be scared or not want to be this fawn's friend. I, I just, I love that. This, like, trusting nature um, is really amazing to me and it's contrasted so strongly with Edmund's first trip into Narnia. Um, and that's probably why Edmund is my favorite is mostly because of this contrast with Lucy is just like the way he approaches things so differently and how, you know, if we, it always makes me think, what if Lucy had met the White Witch and Edmund had wet, had met Mr. Tumnus? Like, how would they have reacted differently? And that has always like spun me a little bit because it's just it's super yeah. interesting the way. The way that plays out and how they're both of their first trips to Narnia are just totally different. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think those two are definitely the pillars of this story. I think maybe that's why, like, maybe in the movie and in the book, Susan and Peter just kind of have a bit of a backseat to Edmund and Lucy. Um, You know, because you've got Lucy's uh, kind of her discipleship um, building up, you know, to be, to trust in Aslan to... Um, you know, be just kind of buy into this wonderful Narnia world, and then you've got Edmund and his journey as the traitor, and then being redeemed, and all these things. And so it just, I think it maybe overshadows the other two kids a bit, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. You can't make every character the main character, but I think those two just are so good; they just overshadow. Yeah, uh, I just love things. Edmund's journey and how you can see him. Yeah. And it, there are, were a handful of, of moments in the movie that I really liked for Edmund. Um, one of them is when he is actually in the movie, they change it so Mr. Tumnus is in jail. He's not stone. Um, so he mm-hmm. gets to actually see with his own eyes what his actions have done. And you can kind of see that mm-hmm. moment where he's like, what have I done? And then like him slowly making it back to himself and I, I love that and that Tilda Swinton also gets a great line in there and she was like do you know why you're here Mr. Tumnus it's like oh because of justice and I believe in a free Narnia and she's like no 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 it's because he sold you out for sweeties and just the just the Ooh. twist to the knife because it's it's so beautifully done and um I mean, it works in the books, too, the way um, Edmund comes to his journey, too. But I, I, re- I just really like that moment. Like, he actually gets to see the consequences of his betrayal. And we get to see him see that and see that turn where he decides to become a better person. Love it. Yeah. Well, it's really, it's really cool. I mean, my, my three favorite literary female characters are Lucy and Elizabeth Bennet and Jane Eyre and what I love here in the film is that we have a really strong young female character who is she's not you know um damaged or overly complicated or any of those things but she's a beautifully strong female character and it's because Mm -hmm. of her belief um 
and her, like you were saying, Andy, her curiosity and all of these really amazingly beautiful qualities that, you know, really aren't celebrated as much anymore as they should be. And I think that's one of the things that I love about Lucy is that, you know, she's who, if I have a daughter, well, one, we're naming her Lucy. Um, (laughs) And two, um, that's what I want her to be like, you know, that's, this character has character um, Mm -hmm. and virtue and all the things that I would want my daughter to be. And I think that's really beautiful to have that picture for, you know, young girls. You can be strong and amazing and be all of these things just like Lucy. And that doesn't make you, that makes, yeah, that's what makes a really strong woman. Um, You know, you don't have to be damaged in all these things (laughs) to be a strong character in, in a movie. Um, and I think you are completely right on Marine. Lewis had a way of writing these kind of characters that they didn't come off boring. And I think part of that is his genius and his brevity. Um, he's, Mm -hmm. he's very, um, efficient with his words and how he tells a story and he only gives you exactly what you need for the story. And, um, I think, uh, instead of, you know, writing a huge tome with 600 pages for one book, he tells you a very simple story, but you feel like it's fleshed out. And I think it leads to something like this. And let's talk about um, some of the other things that we have here. We did have Lim Neeson, who plays um, Aslan, and then James McAvoy playing Mr. Tumnus. Um, these are some really, and then, okay, of course, Ray Winstone and, and uh, Don french playing the voices of the beavers these are some of the most memorable creatures in in narnia coming to life what did you guys think uh about how they did with their portrayal and the way they portrayed them on screen well i have i think this is what um made me have mixed feelings about the film was because um because i think aslan is my favorite character from narnia i wasn't too over the moon with his portrayal in the movie. Um, I think the CGI was fantastic. They did a great job with that. Um, so in terms of like looking and moving like a lion and all that and looking like he was really there, that was spot on. But, um, and this could be just fangirl nitpicking. Um, uh, but like That's I okay. said, we I got do that here on the show all the time. <laughs> well, right, Andy? I got really wound up about this. So maybe it just was inevitable. It was going to let me down. Um, but uh, I guess I was not, if you're going to make a CGI lion, you can make him as big as you want. And it was just odd to me that he was shorter than the kids. I know a real lion standing on all fours is probably might not be as tall as a human boy. Um, still scary. But I, they, Lewis was always impressed uh, upon the reader the size of Aslan. He, you know, he's not a normal-sized lion. He's huge. Um and I think that adds to his presence. And the other thing was, as much as I like Liam Neeson, I wasn't, I didn't really care for his um, voice acting. Um, I felt like he was kind of staid and boring, which really bummed me out because to me, Aslan was not a boring um, character. And I, I felt like maybe they should have gotten someone with uh, a more wild sounding voice, not like over dramatic or anything, but just. Um, it just something else, a different quality. I don't know if it's because Aslan's like supposed to be a Christ-like character, and so we just 
Um, seems like in movies and stuff, you know, Jesus or God always has to have like this really boring voice. I don't know why. Um, <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> I don't know why that is. So I don't know if that's what this, so they decided to go with Liam Neeson or whatever as, you know, this, this really straight arrow. Well, and he can be so non-boring. Obviously, you know, you've seen him in like Taken or any of those kind of films where he's like really action-y and, yeah. you know, like he can really drive into a character. So yeah, I feel like, um. I think yeah. if they had let him use like his Irish accent, that actually oh, would have been, been really so cool. cool. Yeah, an Irish lion. I like. Yeah, it. just and I mean, Lewis is Irish there. as well. Yeah. He grew. I mean, he he's from Ireland, so he is. That would have been true. really really cool. Yeah. I like that. Um, I yeah, I'm with you. I I always wondered why Aslan wasn't bigger. Like mm-hmm. I feel like he should be taller. I'm not like. I mean, I didn't need him to be so much better, but I mean, maybe like twenty percent bigger. Yeah. Just so that he's like on the same level as the kids, like he's their same height. Yeah. Um, I always felt like he just he wasn't big enough for me either. So I'm completely with you. I don't think you're off base there at all. Okay, good. <laughs> but the others, like uh, Mr. Tumnus, I thought was fantastic. And the Beavers were definitely a step up from the BBC version, as much as I yeah. to the BBC. <laughs> they didn't look like gigantic furry footballs. Um, you know, so. I think they they definitely improved on a lot of things. I I would never have thought that James McAvoy could play Mr. Tumnus like that, and I like James McAvoy, but I was still like I'm, I was impressed the first time I saw it, and I just get more and more impressed with that. He's so gentle and sweet, and he's perfect for Mr. Tumnus. He really nailed that role. Yeah. Oh, I yeah. Um, this is one of the the first times I really saw him in anything. Me so too. I I'd never seen him before. And I, I didn't have a lot of other expectations of him as a character or anything. And I think you're right. The way that he plays it really is fantastic. And I love um, the vulnerability with which he plays the role. If, if you hear him talk in the extras, he's talking about the ramifications of, you know, he was really getting into this the headspace of what it would like to be like to be Mr. Tumnus, you know, and, and have this pressure of of what the queen is requiring him to do and knowing what it would be like to let Lucy go and what could happen to him and all of that. And so, um, you know, he really dove into playing that character and all the little nuances he he does and the way he walks and everything. I just, I thought it was, you know, that's Tumnus. You know, I I think he he nails the role. And um, that's what you want from this book because... I think the characters that you need to work, you need Lucy and Edmund to work, and you need Mr. Tumnus to work because he's going to be the first um, character you meet in Narnia. Yeah. And so if he doesn't or the look of him doesn't work, yeah, um, I I really like that. Um, and having Ray Winstone, who played um, another CGI character and Beowulf, he's Beowulf, <laughs> And so the what you can do with somebody's voice and the character they can play and here he's playing, you know, Mr. Beaver is just I I really, really like that. Um, and it was fun to have Dawn French because she plays um, the portrait of the fat lady in Harry Potter. Um, that's the Which, same actress. Uh, incarnation of the fat lady? Because didn't they change actresses? She's uh, in the, um, the third Prisoner movie. Prisoner of Azkaban. Uh, okay. Yeah, at Prisoner Ask Band and Beyond. So okay. really, really like what they did there. I think it really, really worked um, to have those two people do those voices. And um, 
I'm trying to think. Okay, so let's recast Aslan's voice. Um, I'm thinking just because he does everything and he could do it so well, I'm thinking Aslan would have been cool if he had been Benedict no. Cumberbatch. Huh, I don't know. You don't think he can do? You don't think he can do? Is it? Is it? He only have an evil voice. He doesn't have a. No, I'm just sick of Benedict Cumberbatch. Um, he doesn't need to be okay. in every yeah. single thing, guys. Okay, well, I'm I just throw something out there. You guys, what? Who, I actually kind of feel the same way. Like he's cute as Sherlock, but actually, I don't think he's like that fantastic. But um, I don't know. I remember when they were coming out with the film. I got to go to um, my dad took me to this kind of conference thing at Biola University, and they had um, it was for film and television and stuff like that. And they had the people, some of the people from the Narnia film there. Um, and they showed the trailer there. I don't know if that's where they premiered it or not, but um, they, and I don't know if they had cast Aslan's voice yet, but they mentioned um, some of the other people they had lined up. And I remember um, Gerard Butler's name came up. Oh, that would have been rather interesting, um, especially with his Scottish brogue. Mm-hmm. That could um, have worked, yeah. So I, I don't know what he would be like as... Oh, no, we have heard him as a voice actor. He did um, Stoic. How to Train Your Dragon. How to Train Your Dragon. Yeah, okay, yeah, and go. actually yep. he was mm-hmm. really good. So yep, maybe he, he would have been good. good as Aslan. I was thinking Jeremy um, Irons myself. Oh, Jeremy oh, Irons would yeah, have been well, fantastic. Yeah, he voiced another Yeah, and he did that yes. really well. Yeah. Um, no, but I mean, Jeremy Irons is just one of those people that I think has one of the most epic voices in history. Um, and every time Jeremy Irons is talking, I'm just like, hmm. So I, I would have enjoyed that. It doesn't help that in The Lion King you had Jeremy and James Irons. Earl Jones. And James, and James Earl, Jones. Earl Jones. I mean, can you get better deep sounding lion voices? So, um, yeah, yeah, I think I think we're on to something here that, you know, you could just redub those lines with, with another actor. I didn't mind matter. Liam Neeson. Maybe. I just... I mean, I thought he was fine. I, I see why you might not have connected with him, Maureen, because I do think he plays it very calm, uh, which can definitely read as yeah. boring. So I, I, I definitely see your criticism there, but I didn't. I didn't actually have a problem with it. Um, I, I don't think he was horrible. It wasn't it just quite wasn't what you no. wanted, yeah. and I, I can certainly understand no. that. <laughs> I feel like it needed to be kind of like you got this feeling of restrained wildness. Yes, that's you know, what that, would have been nice. That there's always this moment where you, like, and you should feel it because that's the point of Aslan is he's not safe, but he's good. Yeah. So you should always feel like there's a moment this lion could snap. Yeah. And just well, tear you to pieces. And, but that he's he's restrained all of that to have the kindness come out which is actually so, why yeah. i was thinking of jeremy irons because he has a great villain voice too yeah yeah i think well i mean it's interesting because you know we're talking about you know big name actors and stuff but i don't know maybe a professional voice actor would have been better yeah um you know i i know it's you know liam neeson you know was a big name and everything probably helped um you know kind of sell that a little bit but yeah maybe somebody who that that is what they do for a living um and that's what they're trained to do uh would have been better instead of a big name actor mm. well and and knowing the voice actors that i know from things like star wars the clone wars and things like that 
those people are incredible at what they do and I, I, I yeah I'm with you you don't have to have a big name um, that's just kind of become the thing in Hollywood to do is to have a big name voice things and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't and yeah, yeah yeah he's he isn't he isn't terrible I think that he does play it a little bit too restrained and it would have been nice to have um, just a little bit more passion in there I feel like sometimes so yeah um, well, this is, I mean, and I think we've all said, you know, this is a loved story and, um, it's one of the mo- world's most loved books. And, you know, thinking about it now and being removed from all the pressure of what you wanted it to be, do you feel like this movie does do what Lewis created with the line, the witch and the wardrobe justice? Well... Like I said, having as I was getting ready for the podcast, I was starting to think that maybe I'd been a little too hard on the film when it first came out. Um, I think it comes very close. I don't know if... I think I might have to rewatch it to see if I feel differently now than I did when it first came out. And also having to like divorce myself from the other two, um, which I really didn't like. Um, but yeah, I think, I think it comes... Uh, very very close for me I don't know if I would give it a complete a plus though yeah for me I, I would say that it's it's a it's a good ad- adaptation it's a very very solid adaptation um, there were a handful of parts of it that got to to be a little bit too cliche epic fantasy for me um, but for the most mm-hmm. part I, I think that these were people that really understood their source material and what what was the themes and that they were trying to get across and they they nailed some some of the most important elements so Edmund and Lucy and Mr. Tomness and and the white witch I think were all basically exactly right so yeah there are a handful of things that I would change but I would say that this is one of the more solid book adaptations that we get and it's certainly way better than the ones we get later for this series I mean I would never even rewatch Prince oh, yeah. Caspian ever Mm-mm. So, you know, um, I, I really am. I'm with you guys. Um, you know, there's only one thing I think that I would change completely about the movie. And it, I would, it is, if you're going to keep it in, you need to redo it completely because the river scene is, it, the production value on it, as much as they tried, it's just not good. It doesn't look good. Um, it, it's not from the book. So, no. um, and, and I don't mind, I know why they have it in there. It's a movie thing. Um, it just doesn't look good. So it's either you redo it and make it look better or you just take it this out. This is also um, when we got some of so our be- most unlikable Susan moments. And also when Peter hesitates, um, mm-hmm. I, I don't know that I, I, I would agree with you that this is one of the, they, I honestly think they should just take it out. And I understand that from a pacing perspective, mm-hmm. they want to have an action beat here, but it's not necessary. Um, it just slows us down from getting to the meat of Narnia, which is the stone table. Um, and it's yeah. not good character moments for Susan or Peter. And it's not it's not intense. And, and you're right, Matthew, that especially compared to the rest of the movie the production value is not up to par here i would honestly just take it out it's not necessary yeah i i think i was just thinking about that scene as well that if you 
take out all the effort and the resources you put into that scene and redo um, Aslan's resurrection scene, which to me was a weak point for the film. Um, because in the book, it's so exciting, and they have that romp with Aslan, which I was really looking forward to, because um, you couldn't do that in the BBC version with that giant puppet. Yeah. You know, it wasn't going to move like that, and I that was one of my favorite scenes in the book. He comes back, and the girls get to romp with a lion, which, again, how awesome would that be? And you know he's not going to kill you, so... Um, that as a kid was one of my favorite scenes and the fact that they skipped it in the film and instead spent like time on that river scene or whatever else is like what really so i that would probably be one of the things i'd redo yeah i mean in the book aslan actually like throws them in the air (laughs) i can see why that would be hard to shoot but still like they could at least try to they could That's at least true. try to have that that kind of playful scene because I think it is important that Ozlin going into that scene is very depressed and downcast, and then afterwards it's like new hope and yeah, oh, exactly. he's triumphant. And, and yeah. I, I do agree that they should have had at least something. Maybe not as much as I love it. The fact that he like throws them in the air. <laughs> I think that's great. That but, would have been uh, I can awesome. see how that could not work <laughs> from a, a movie perspective. Yeah. CGI lion yeah. tossing little girls in the air. <laughs> that's true. But yeah, I'm with you. He he does. He uh he comes back joyful and triumphant. So, um <laughs> it would be nice if if that scene played out just a little bit longer as well. Um I think last thing kind of want to talk a little bit about was just um, the music of Narnia and the production value of of like what the world looks like with, um, you know, after seeing Lord of the Rings, that's a very important part. And um, so how they create the world, the, the props they use, the fact that so many of the um, creatures are real, like the minotaurs and a bunch of those fawns, the centaurs, the way they do them on on screen. They had people there and in all this armor and everything as much as possible. And I think that really added to the the way this feels. It, it feels, um, you know, you, you see a Minotaur, you could go up and touch it, you know, the, that kind of stuff. So what did you guys think about um, the way all that worked? Well, you together? mentioned the music. I love the music. Um, there are actually a handful of moments, especially in the beginning and then uh, some of the battle scenes where the music actually gets me enough that I start to choke up a little. I'm like, yeah, man. Yeah. Um, and that's what a good score does. You know, it manipulates your emotions without having to to use dialogue or anything. It's it's using music to, to set the scene and the tone. And sometimes if you do it well enough, it can cause an emotional reaction all on its own, and I I love that about the music. And some of the um, prop details are really cool. I really liked the witch's wand and the way that they they made mm, that because yeah. it looks like a weapon, which is what it is. And I mean, you just how long it is. Like you could totally just give her I don't know some sort of small wand, more like Harry Potter wand. But I thought that this version of like this weapon long staff like weapon almost looked really really cool and just like little things like that um or like the crowns at the end i thought the crowns were really beautiful stuff like that really helps with your world building and i thought they did a good job it doesn't make me surprised at all to know that weta did it because obviously weta detail work is their bread and butter so yeah (laughs) yeah i think um 
visually like color wise and the way the costumes looked and everything it really it it looked like narnia um and this most of the scenes like the places they chose to shoot i think were really good um i wasn't too big on the the big battle scene at the end um just this kind of like big blank field um felt a little nondescript to me um, they had those rock formations at the end though. So I guess that was kind of cool, but I loved, um, Care Paravel. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I thought that was beautiful. That looked like a, the way a fairy tale castle should look. Um, and near the end when they're adults, um, I actually based the colors for my wedding off of that scene. Cause I oh, just wow. loved, yeah. um, the rich, uh, like purples and oranges and reds of that scene. And I think it's pretty, I think they had Georgie Henley's older sister play they older did. Lucy, which yep, I thought was super is, cute. Yep. So, um, yeah, I think that's, I will give it that in terms like it really did look the way Narnia should look. Well, and I love, and I really do love, you know, if you're going to bring mythological creatures to life, which we all have pictures in our minds of what fawns look like, either from the drawings by Pauline Barnes from the Narnia books, which fantastic, beautiful, amazing artwork. Or, you know, we've, you know, seen them in in mythology books or other things. Um, I think they just, Weta was the perfect people to, to go to to do the production design there for those creatures and to make them look real and um, to really work with that on screen and and then of course them doing the the armor work like they did on Lord of the Rings and the the weapons that kind of stuff and then the costumes you know um the way that everything looks when they're in the 40s yeah is, is really well done it it all feels like all of those characters live in that world um you know they did a ton of study of of what um you know the the fabrics were that people would wear then what they would be wearing all of that i think looked really um really good and even just that 1940s world of london um they figured out okay you know what train station would these kids be at for the for real if they were going to the country um you know what the train line would look like so all those little details add i think so much and then of course when you get to narnia it really pretty much looks just like my imagination always pictured it looking and to be able to say that to a book that's my absolute favorite i can't give it a higher you know rating than to say it looked like i thought it was going to look like yeah and uh you know, when you watch Harry Potter or or even Lord of the Rings, there are certain things in there where you're like, ah, oh, that doesn't look the way I thought it was going to look. But on a whole, there's nothing in this bo- this movie where I'm like, other than Aslan, I just wish he was bigger. Everything looks exactly what I thought it would look like. Yeah, I think, um, oh, one of my favorite, like, Narnia insider geek moments were the little details with the professor, with Professor Kurt. The apple snuff um, box. Like the little silver. Yes, the little silver apple on yeah. his uh, desk. Yeah. And then when you look at the wardrobe, it's carved with scenes from The Magician's Nephew. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's so cool. So I loved like those little details. I I geeked out over. I thought that was really awesome. Well, I think um, in the end to me, I, watching the behind the scenes, Andrew Adamson 
loved this material. And in fact, when they were interviewing him, they they said the interview really turned around and he said, well, look, um, I'm just going to be honest with you. I've, I've heard that there's some scripts out there and I pretty much don't want to make those. The, and they were like, okay, this is the guy. Um, and I think the way that he worked with those kids, um, the fact that they all come off as kids, so whether they're obnoxious sometimes or bratty or any of those things that, that we don't kind of like they come off as real kids. It's fantastic. And, um, I, I think he just worked tirelessly to make the Narnia that he remembered as a kid. And that's why so many people reacted the way they did to it. And, um, I guess, uh, if, as we kind of wrap up, what would you rate this, this movie Narnia? Um, where would you kind of say it, uh, it ranks for you? What Are we about doing you, this out of five? Um, yeah, I, we'll do it out of, we'll do it out of six. <laughs> okay, then I'll give it five out of six. There are a handful of, of small awesome. characterization things that I wasn't super fond of. Um, and, you know, there, there were a handful of scenes that I wasn't super fond of, like the river scene. Um, so I would definitely not say it was perfect, but it was a very, it was a very good adaptation and I quite enjoy this movie. I think I'd have to say the same. Not definitely not spot on, but um, I think like I've been saying, like looking retro retrospect back to it and everything, I think it was a lot better than maybe I first thought it was. So um, I think I'll give it a five out of six. I think this movie, yeah, five out of six. And because it's a lot like Mary Poppins, it's practically perfect <laughs> in every way. You know, it's practically perfect. It's not perfect, um, but it, it gets as close as I wanted it to. Um, you know, you can never make the perfect movie for everyone anyway. That's and, true. And uh, so I, I love that I can watch this. And as a fan of this book from, you know, the age of five or six, that I'm still... I, lo- I like it. That means something, you know. Um, there's a great quote in uh, You've Got Mail where uh, she says that, you know, when you read a book as a child, it becomes part of your identity in a way that no other reading in your whole life does. And so the fact that this is a book that so many people grow up loving and watch this movie and for the most part really like it, I think means a lot. Um, and, uh, I'm really pleased with what we got. Would you guys like to see somebody? Because we've all said we don't really like the other two films, Prince Caspian and Voyage of the Dawn Treader that they did. Um, would you guys like to see somebody kind of remake all of these and, and really do all seven? And, and would you like to see them maybe animated, like do a completely animated series or what would you guys like to see Narnia done as in the future if somebody decides to do this again? I mean, I think you could make a, a really epic seven movie series out of it. Um, really, this is just making me wish that somebody made a, a good Dark is Rising <laughs> set of movies. Because at least, at least we got Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which is the most important one. And we got it mostly right. But uh, yeah, I mean, you could you could really do a good job with with these movies I think and you could really make them very very good um especially you know uh, bringing in some of the the other elements like the magician's nephew um I think would really really be cool if somebody did it right yeah I think um 
Yeah, I would like to see them remade and all seven made and hopefully done as well as they can be. Um, I I have to admit, I was kind of relieved that they didn't keep going with the movies or at least haven't thus far because um, Prince Caspian and Voyage of the Dawn Treader were so disappointing that the later books are actually some of my favorites. Horse and His Boy, Magician's Nephew, Last Battle, those are probably actually some of my favorites. And I was kind of glad they didn't get to them so that they couldn't ruin them for me. Um... I don't know if I'd want to see them animated, though, or live action, because kind of the fun of the live action film is feeling like it's really coming to life, whereas an animated film, I don't know if it would feel like it's so much coming to life. Then again, there are some really good animation studios out there who make really good movies, um, and some movies that are sometimes better, much better than live action. So I don't know. I, I think I think I'd be a little torn on ter- in terms of the medium used the only reason i asked is just because at that point you can do whatever you want visually this is very true um and so it's and and it will all look good um and uh but uh, there is something about having that live action version that really does yeah it does make it pop off the page it brings it to life um it makes it feel real even though it's not so i would love to see um, this uh, redone and, and um, by a studio that does really get the storylines, um, doesn't change them, doesn't make them crazy. Uh, that's one of the things that Prince Caspian and the Voyage of the Dawn Treader did is that they changed up too many of the story plot threads to, to really make them feel like what we knew the books were. And yeah. uh, it didn't help the storylines. Uh, it didn't help the movies either. So... Um, yeah, I think this is definitely a series that hopefully somebody will do because there's, uh, I'd love to see the silver chair done. Um, it's, uh, it's an amazingly kind of creepy story and the visuals and that would be fantastic. Um, yeah, there's just some great stories here. Horse and his boy has some epic visuals. I'm thinking like Lawrence of Arabia style, uh, visuals you could get. So this is, um, this is a series that really is ripe for somebody to do it. Uh, and to do it right, so hopefully that will happen someday in the future. But and maybe um, they would make it into eight movies, since we seem to be doing that thing where we oh God, like, split yeah. the last book. You know, uh, not necessary yeah. for this one. I wish they'd stop that. Yeah, oh I well, wish... it's, it's rarely necessary, but they keep yeah. doing it. Yeah, hopefully Unless it's for they... their pocketbooks, I guess. Yeah. Well, thank you guys so much for for talking tonight. It's been amazing getting to talk about The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, but it is not the only thing that we've been talking about on Trek FM this past week. So here is a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit. And I think it was a very anticlimactic thing for a lot of people because they were expecting me to to do you know my raw and ranting thing but instead i just was like oh that's depressing okay bye earl gray they've now shifted into the biff controlled 1985 who got a hold of the almanac in order to turn yesterday's enterprise the enterprise c is the delorean in this scenario the orb i'd like to see the borg assimilate Ferenginar. And then they would become bankers. You know, I could see... Oh my gosh, I could see drones. Yeah, yeah. 
the, the world's strictest bank ever. Yeah, right. I'm sorry, you have not paid your loan. You will be assimilated. <laughs> the nanites go into you. Yes. <laughs> to the journey. I, I, I kind of want something with a little bit more teeth. For some okay. reason, like like starting a garden just doesn't scream mirror universe to me. <laughs> starting a garden doesn't have teeth. <laughs> the ready room. I hate to put it this way, but maybe in, in some strange twisted logical sense if archer just kind of flew on by and didn't help the colonists the enterprise d would have never crash landed on viridian so it's not troy's fault it's captain archer's fault literary treks this is this is something that doesn't get done a lot in books because i don't think the time period's supposed to be that long Mm -hmm. but what did you end up thinking about having a story take place before where no man's gone before well i thought personally that it was really cool the 602 club my two favorite scenes in the film are cap saying language (laughs) and then the rest of what the jokes that go with that and then cap moving the hammer just enough then thor's face when he can't pick it up is priceless and that's what else is happening on trek.fm Check out these shows. Find out what we've been talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and, of course, beyond, like Narnia. Uh, you'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, if you're an Apple user uh, and you really love our shows, we'd love for you to help us out in a few ways. You can subscribe to us um, as well as give us a star rating and review. Both of those things help us rise in the rankings in iTunes and just make it easier for other people who enjoy talking about movies and all sorts of things like we do here on the 602 Club easier. Also, right now, um, we are trying to get to 50 reviews on iTunes, and we're trying to do that by June 1st. And if that does happen, we're going to look at all those reviews we get in the U.S. store, and we're just going to pick somebody at random, and they will win um, a superhero Blu-ray of their choice, as well as an Eagle Moss USS Vengeance, which Norm has, which we're really excited to give away. So we'd love to be able to hit that, and you can help us do that. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find the shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from the website, and you can grab the RSS link as well. Another important thing, and the best way that you can really help us out, is to keep all of our shows coming to each week by visiting Patreon. And you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash trekfm and you'll find all the current goals we have, milestone contribution levels. We are a listener-supported network. We just do this on a volunteer basis, so we need your help to keep things going. We appreciate all the support you give us, and we hope that you'll join our team. You can find us again at patreon.com slash trekfm. And I wanted to say a special thanks. We've got an iTunes review from Admiral Rex. Gave us a fantastic five-star review. Thank you so much. Appreciate that. And you're in the running, of course, for the contest. Another special thank you to our associate producers, Norman Lau, for his support of the network and the 602 Club. He's on Twitter at Norman Lau. And, of course, a big supporter of the Star Trek Axonar project can be found on their official Facebook page as well as the Babel Conference. And he's also the host of Warp 5 with Will Wynn also like to thank Ken Tripp for his support of the network and being an associate producer here on the 602 Club as well. If you would like to contact us, you can do that at trek.fm slash contact. You can leave us a voicemail. Just look on the sidebar in the show page. Go to speakpipe.com slash trek.fm. 
We're on Twitter at Trek FM, Facebook, Facebook.com slash Trek FM. And of course, our listeners only discussion group, the Babel Conference. Have an amazing conversation. Just type B A B E L into the search field on Facebook or go to Trek.fm and click discussion on the menu bar. Ladies, thank you so much for joining me here tonight. Now, Maureen, is there anywhere that listeners can you find you online? Oh, not really, actually. I'm not uh, big on social media She's or anything mysterious. like that. She's mysterious. That like is okay. Yeah, she likes to be mysterious. So. I, I do love Pinterest, so I guess you could find me on Pinterest, maybe. Oh, there you go. What is your Pinterest name so people can follow you there? Oh, okay. Um, I think it's at Lady M. One one three eight. Oh, good, good. And of course, too, if they'd like to get in touch with you, they can always contact Darren. He's on the Babel Conference on Facebook or at Doctor Sci-Fi on Twitter, and they can let him know how much they love you. I hope show, so. so. I hope it would be that sort of message. <laughs> <laughs> Andy, of course, let everybody know where they can find well, you. Well, um, I just started DS9, so if you want a first-time track DS9 with me, you can do that um, oh, yeah. on Twitter. Who's that badass bald captain on your avatar these days? <laughs> yeah, I, I got a lot of really cool, um, excited responses to the fact that I'm finally hitting Deep Space Nine. So that's on Twitter, at First Time Trek. You can also check out my archive project which is at firsttimetrack.tumblr.com and you can also check out my podcast women at warp at women at warp.com and i am now looking up uh maureen so I, we can be pinterest buddies okay awesome. <laughs> thank you well you guys can find me on twitter at matt rushing zero two you can also find me on the orb with christopher jones where we talk about deep space nine exclusively so as Andy is watching Deep Space Nine now, you can find all of our Deep Space Nine talk there on the orb here in the network. You can also find me doing literary treks with Dan where we talk about the books and the comics of Star Trek. And of course, I have my own personal blog at 42lifeinbetween.wordpress.com. Well, thank you so much for visiting Narnia with us this week. And y'all come back now, you hear? <laughs>